Welcome to the perfect competition slash competitive market structure section of microeconomics. This is Dr. Terry Elin coming to you from home to wherever you are. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the economic ride. So perfect competition is the first market structure that we see out of the four, and it is what we consider the competitive benchmark. The reason why we see it first is due to some of its assumptions, it's quite easy to analyze uh, compared to some of the other ones that we do analyze them to some extent in this class, especially the imperfect competition uh, types of market structures, but they do get much more complicated in real world. And therefore, uh, they're, they're for more advanced courses typically. We still cover the basics in this class. But the reason why competitive market structure is easier to analyze is because we assume that there is a many infinite buyers and sellers. So there's like just a ton of people are interested in this product and all the buyers and sellers are buying and selling an identical slash homogeneous product, which means that you cannot differentiate between the two products. So if you're thinking about different clothing or toothpaste or even toilet paper, you can't say that those goods uh, would satisfy this perfect competition assumption because there is some level of branding involved. Even though they might be quite similar, uh, they're not treated as the same. But if you have a ton of sellers, an identical homogeneous product, free entry and exit into the market, so there's no way of blocking anyone from entering, and for all market structures, we always assume perfect knowledge at this stage uh, that you as a buyer know the going price of all the sellers out there in the market. It's not as if you only had access to part of the information. Everyone has access to all their information. The sellers know what the how many buyers there is. The buyers know how many sellers there are, what price, and so on. So that's assumed for all four market structures that we're going to see. But the first three are what's going to differentiate between uh, perfect competition, monopoly, monopolistic competition, and oligopoly. So if I think about these three assumptions that are important, if I think of a monopoly, well, the big thing that makes a monopoly a monopoly is because there is barriers to entry. And as soon as there's barriers to entry, there's only one seller. So instead of an infinite amount of sellers, there's only one. And since you're the only seller, well, you don't have to compare the different products because it's just you selling products. Whereas in uh, oligopoly, you're going to have a situation where you have a few sellers. There's not necessarily any barriers to entry. And all of those sellers sell identical products, such as gasoline and uh, other things of that nature. And then you could have monopolistic competition where you have a certain amount of sellers. Here you have differentiated products. So the products are not the same. So you're thinking of clothing, toothpaste, uh, chips, whatever. All of those goods have a certain level of branding involved and that's gonna give all of the players a certain level of market power. So depending on the assumptions or what's going on in the industry that you're in, you're going to be in one of these market structures. So I can't simply say I'm going to start a snowboard producing business and I'm going to be a monopoly. Well, there's a lot of other sellers out there. Um, I can't stop them from coming in. So that's not the case. If you start a new invention, a new kind of like a hoverboard or something else that doesn't exist and you're the only one who kind of found a way to make it happen and you've patented your product and you're able to 
stop other people from selling a similar product uh, without having like intellectual property infringement well in that case you might have a monopoly for a certain amount of time but if you start a restaurant that's kind of like really trendy on a certain kind of product uh, that people kind of develop a taste for and more businesses want to start the same thing well you don't have any market power there you can't stop them from coming in so it all depends what industry that you're in and uh, how you could protect yourself and you might start as a monopoly so if you go in a village that doesn't have a yoga studio you might be the first one opening and at first you could act as a monopoly but as soon as other uh, people enter then you could have if you have some level of differentiation you'll be moving towards monopolistic competition and if you're all treated as the same and you're competing on price you'll be acting more as an oligopoly Needless to say that if you had a spectrum from one seller to an infinite amount of sellers, perfect competition would be on that end with an infinite amount of sellers. Then monopoly would be at the other end with only one seller and imperfect competition is all of those groups in between. And the goods that are really part of perfect competition are really rare in practice, even though we still analyze this, you would have to think about goods that are not differentiated and there is a lot of sellers out there. So not differentiated goods is pretty straightforward. If you think of anything we consider in English as commodities, well, a commodity is a non-differentiated good. So if you think about wheat, you think of a certain grade of petroleum, a certain grade of gold, all of those, regardless of where they come from, they're sold on the world markets at a given price, a given world price. So all of those goods would satisfy the kind of like perfect, uh, perfectly identical goods. The only thing then that's important as well for perfect competition is that all of these sellers, none of them are large enough to have a substantial amount of market power. So if we think about diamonds, well, diamonds is an industry where you have a few really big sellers so that wouldn't really work out in terms of perfect competition. So just think of any good out there that's perfectly identical and there's a lot of sellers out there and none of them have uh, a really large share. So every seller and buyer is seen as a price taker in terms of the world demand and supply leads to a world price and all the buyers and sellers take that price as given. So no one has an influence on the price in this specific setting. So as soon as you understand that and you assume that, well, if you're the seller, you could think that, well, I could sell, let's say the world price of this good is $10. Well, if I sell one unit, I get $10. I sell two, I get $20. I sell three, I get $30 and so on and so forth. If the price I get is always the same, regardless of how much I sell. Even if I decide to sell a thousand, it's still such a small number with regards to the whole market that I do not influence its price. It means I will always get $10 for each of those units. In that case, if you think about it, well, that increase in revenue for each of those additional units that you sell will always be the same. Therefore, my marginal revenue is constant which is a change in revenue over my change in output, my change of amount of units that I sell. And therefore, my price is also equal to my marginal revenue. And one that's a little bit less important, but is also good to note is average revenue will also be equal. Because if you think about that example, when I had 
$30 for three units. Well, I divide $30 by three to get my average revenue. And it's always going to be that price, $10. So in perfect competition, we take the price as given. And because of that, when we're going to start maximizing uh, profits, we're going to have different graphs that we have to analyze. And this is the only one of the four market structures that use a two graph analysis. You'll have one graph that is the world supply and the world demand that will establish the world price for this good. And then on the graph to its side, which are normally like side by side, you'll take that price, you'll kind of go across and the price that you have, that world price that's determined at a given point in time, well, that will be a kind of like horizontal individual demand curve or marginal revenue curve, average revenue curve, price curve, uh, regardless of how you call it. It's just horizontal line that represents my marginal revenue. And that's going to represent like how much marginal revenue I will get for different amount of sales. And in that case, uh, when you look at tables and you look at the graph, you'll notice one of the big things you have to remember for all these four market structures is you're always maximizing profit when you set marginal revenue is equal to marginal costs. Here, marginal revenue is not changing. You don't have any influence on it. So you have to make sure that your marginal cost at the profit maximizing level of output that you have is equal to that marginal revenue. And why is it that you're not maximizing your profits if that's not the case? Well, if I think of the definition of marginal revenue and marginal costs, one is my change in revenue for one more unit sold, and one's my change in cost for one more unit sold. So let's say my marginal revenue is $10 and my marginal cost is $6. Well, I should be producing that unit because I could sell it for $10 and I only have to increase my cost by $6. So I could increase my profits by $4 by doing so. So if marginal revenue is equal uh, greater than marginal cost, I should increase my production level up to the point. And we know that the marginal cost curve has that upward uh, sloping segment. And you know that at one point, since we have one that's perfectly flat and one that has it goes upwards, there's going to be an intersection point. So you, if marginal cost is smaller marginal revenue, increase your output. And if the opposite happens, that you have a marginal cost of $14 and your marginal revenue is still $10, well, that unit should not have been produced because that unit that costs you $14 to produce and you can only get $10 to sell it is leading to a reduction in your profits. So you should reduce your level of output because at that point you're at the section where the marginal cost curve is above the marginal revenue curve. So if you go left a little bit, marginal cost curve is lower and then you have a situation where you are maximizing your profits. And if you look at the table in the notes, you'll notice that where MR is equal to MC, is where you are maximizing your profit level. If, if you have one additional unit that you could produce with MR equal to MC, well, regardless of if you produce a smaller or a larger output, you'll have the same profit level. That makes sense because if you produce one more unit at $10 and you get $10 for it, your profit levels won't change. But if you were to keep on increasing your production beyond that, where your marginal cost is greater than your marginal revenue, you'll see that your profits are going down. So the marginal cost is equal to marginal revenue. Uh, equality serves to determine what is the profit maximizing level of output if we choose to produce. 
Then you should also note that when you establish that quantity, for that specific quantity, you have to look at the relationship between the price or the marginal revenue curve and the average total cost. So we've established with MC is equal to MR, what quantity to produce if we produce. And then afterwards, you have to look at, well, for that production level, what is my average cost per unit? And that's my average total cost. And if your average total cost is below your marginal revenue curve, it means that you have a higher price on average, your average revenue curve and marginal revenue curve is the same. So on average, you have a higher level of revenue than you have for cost. Therefore, you are making positive profits. That vertical distance between the average total cost and the MR equal AR equal to P curve is the, either the profit or the loss per unit produced. If the revenue is higher than the cost, well, that's a profit. And if the cost curve was higher than the, the revenue curve at that quantity, then you would be making a loss per unit. And then if you think about, well, if I sell a thousand units, what's my total profit or total loss? Well, it's that loss or gain per unit multiplied by the amount of units that you're selling. So it's going to be a rectangle because you have a vertical distance and then multiplied by a horizontal distance. Well, it's as if saying you had a rectangle that has a vertical distance of three and a horizontal distance of five. Well, that would give you an area of 15. Well, here is the same. If you have a vertical distance of $3 per unit and you're selling five units, well, you make a profit of $15. So marginal revenue equal to marginal cost determines the profit maximizing level of quantity if we produce. Average total cost determines whether we are making profits or losses, and we'll see the implications of that in the long run. And then if you are making losses, if you're making profits, you don't have to care about the average variable cost. But if you are making losses, the question then becomes whether you should shut down immediately or shut down later. And if your price or your marginal revenue, which is the same, is above the average variable cost, well, it means that you're at least covering your variable costs. And the whole idea here is, let's say you have a coffee shop and you realize that it was a poor decision. Uh, you're losing money, uh, you should have never opened it or you should have shut down last year when you had a chance. And then uh, you ask yourself, well, I've paid for a bunch of things, like I've already paid my rent, I've already paid for uh, my advertising, I've paid for different permits I needed. Uh, should, I, should I open up tomorrow? And that's the kind of question that you ask yourself and the the way you answer that is by saying well if I open tomorrow what's the extra gain I'm going to get and what's the extra cost involved so yes the rent and everything else is paid off so that's not an extra cost your extra cost will be those variable amounts so if you're selling coffee it's going to be like that employee you're you're hiring the extra electricity you use, because you'll still be using some just to keep the place semi-heated, not to create damages and uh, create higher expenses for you in the future. But So you have a bit more electricity, a bit of water, coffee usage, maybe cups, cleaning, uh, a few workers, some lighting and everything else. Well, if all of that amounts to, let's say, $300 for the day, well, if you 
open up and you can only generate like $200 worth of sales, well, it doesn't make any sense because your variable costs, the cost for that extra day of work are superior than the revenues for that extra day of work. Therefore, you should shut down immediately. But if you're making, let's say, $400 and you have that $300 of costs, does it make, mean that you're making profits all of a sudden for the whole year? It just means that at least you're covering your variable costs. So because you've lost a lot of money by paying for your rent and everything else and it was just too expensive and you're just not able to make profits altogether, economic profits, you might still be covering your variable costs now, which means that you should open up those days. And typically, you, when we say that you're making losses, but you're covering your variable costs, is you should shut down in the future. Well, what is the future? Well, it's whenever all of those fixed costs, those sunk costs, get renewed. So let's say you had a lease agreement till July. Well, stay open till July. If you had like other kind of agreements, things that you've prepaid that go for a certain amount of time, well, pretty much when those things end. Whenever you could kind of get out of that business and not lose too much. Because if you decide to shut down prematurely, you still have to have paid all of those things. So your overall loss in your business, how much money you've lost, or and here, as always, zero economic profit is you making the same amount of money as working for someone else doing similar work. So an economic loss could still be that you're making money, but let's say you're working for someone else at 60000 a year, and now you're operating a coffee shop and you're only making 25000 a year. You're not necessarily losing money, you're just not making much compared to what you could be making for the same amount of time. So if you decide to shut down right away, you might only make like 10000 which is a terrible loss, like you're losing a lot of money compared to your next best alternative. But if you stay in operation a little longer, you might only lose uh, 15 or whatever. So um, relative to how much you would have made. So maybe the loss is not as high. So that's the kind of question you have to ask yourself when you're operating a business and you realize, oh, this is maybe not the best idea. Uh, well, when's the best timing for you to shut down? And if you're not covering your barrel costs, it's pretty straightforward, shut down immediately. So afterwards, uh, depending on the situation that you're in, we talk about long run equilibrium and the long run equilibrium start, starts from a situation where a stable situation is when there is zero economic profit. If you have a world market, like that graph that determines a price and that price leads to a situation of zero economic profit, well, in that situation, you don't have an incentive to enter or exit. There's not going to be people within the industry that will want to leave because they're not losing money. They're there and they're happy to be their own bosses. But there's not people that are going to want to enter either because if they enter, they're not making any more money. It's not really worth the hassle. And if a lot of people enter, well, it could actually drive down the price and then everyone starts losing money. So a stable situation is where everyone that's in right now is making zero economic profit. If everyone is losing a certain amount of money, whether it's enough to shut down right away or in the future, there's going to be a tendency for some of these uh, businesses to shut down over time, some more rapidly than others. And as those businesses shut down over time, well, you on your own don't have a much an impact on the world markets, but if a lot of suppliers leave the market, well, that supply curve will start shifting left because there's less and less suppliers. For a given price, there's less and less quantity that you can obtain. 
Therefore, that's going to drive up the prices. And as people leave the industry, well, prices will start creeping back up, meaning that whoever remains will be in a zero economic profit situation again. So that is a transition that you will notice graphically when you start from a situation of a loss. And then if you start from a situation of a, a large economic profits, well, naturally, you expect more people to want to enter this industry. As more people entered in this industry, the supply curve is going to shift right, driving down the price, leading to a situation of zero economic profit. The typical example that you'd have if you think of an innovative new business, uh, like a good restaurant or a good kind of gym that people will uh, love the idea behind it. And as you open it, well, because there's nothing protecting you from being the sole seller or provider of the service, more businesses will offer the same thing and it's going to start kind of diluting the market and dropping down the price that you can charge for it. So that's the kind of situation that you would expect. Prices start driving down, leading to zero economic profit. Once again, a stable situation. So that was going from either zero economic profit, positive profits or negative profits to a new stable situation of zero economic profits. But what could drive us out of this kind of like equilibrium that we have zero economic profits? So typically on an exam question, if you have a long answer question, you'll have a situation where I stay, you start from a zero economic, uh, like a stable situation. And that in your mind should say, stable situation is a situation where there is zero economic profit. You draw it out, you figure it out. And then all of a sudden, uh, the product that is being sold has an increase in appeal or a decrease in appeal uh, due to different factors. So maybe this uh, wheat product you know, all of a sudden has been known to cause cancer. And all of a sudden, there's going to be a drop in demand for this product. As the demand curve shifts left because less than people want to buy this product, well, it's going to start driving down the price. So now you fall into a situation of zero uh, negative economic profits and then you just think about the transition back to zero economic profit and that happens with people either entering or leaving and in this specific case a lot of businesses are leaving so if we think about this in a kind of a multi-step format start from a situation as stable zero economic profit draw it out then something's going to shift the supply curve or the demand curve, typically more the demand curve. So it's going to be either an increase in appeal or a decrease in appeal for this product. Uh, and then, or it could also be something that shifts the supply curve. There's a war that broke or like a forest fire that just took over a bunch of crops and whatever else. And then from that new point, you now have a price that leads to either positive economic profits or economic losses for the businesses that were already in business. And that's going to either drive more people in or drive people out to a new long run equilibrium. So hopefully you understand this whole dynamics of it all. And then this kind of format, super interesting just to kind of see how if you start a business, uh, how things might evolve over time. And even though you're not like if you open up a restaurant, it's not something that's perfectly homogeneous. Uh, those kind of forces, those kind of transitions to stable situations in the future kind of apply as well to a lot of industries. So hopefully it got clear for you guys here. I'll, uh, I, I hope you guys understood. Watch the videos. You'll, you'll see all the graphs in there. And I'll catch you guys next week when we talk about Monopoly. Take care.